Welcome to Coach House Talks. So, um, you'll know as a church we've been going through Acts as a, as a continuum. We've been going through and we'll continue till the end of it. We're, we're in 16, so we're kind of getting towards the end. Um, we'll probably hit a chapter a, a, a week now of, uh, through, so we won't, uh, so you'll know where we're up to and things. But I just want to ask you a question. Church life's easy, isn't it? He said no. It's a doddle. We all love each other. We all get on well. We all, it's no problem, is it? Yeah. It'd be nice to say that, wouldn't it? It would be really, really nice to say that we agree about everything. We never have a disagreement. We never fall out with one another. Everything's always rosy when we come to church. It's not the truth, though, is it? We strive for unity, but we're all individuals. And when we're individuals that come together in one place, we all have our own way of doing things. We all, we all have our special way that we like things to be. And you know what? It's going to lead to disagreement and sometimes friction. And sometimes, unfortunately, it leads to separation. We're often surprised by this, but we shouldn't be. Scripture's full of it. And we're going to look at one today. Luke, when he's writing Acts, doesn't leave anything off the table. He sticks it all on there for us. And it's so we can see it, it's so we can understand how we're supposed to act together. Now, when I was doing Acts 15 last week, I left a little bit out. So we're just going to cover the last bit of Acts 15 from last week. Is there a graphic to go up there? Yeah. There we go. So we've, we've headed this change of direction. Acts 15, starting from, um, from verse 37, this is where we left off last week. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached. So if you remember, he's done his first missionary journey. They've been to the churches in southern Turkey. Let's go back and see how these new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along with him John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. Then he travelled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. You see, disagreements sometimes happen. And sometimes they are totally irreparable. So what do we do about it? Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement, the scripture tells us. Well, actually, the Greek word that's used to describe this is a provoking argument they stirred each other up to provocation. That's not just a little argument. That is a full-on steaming disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And it meant that they actually would go their separate ways. When Luke writes this account for us, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, well, you know, he doesn't dumb it down, he just puts it out there for us. 
they had a proper falling out. There's little evidence that Paul and Barnabas actually ever settled this dispute. They certainly never travelled again together. And we hear no more about Barnabas or John Mark throughout the rest of Acts. It's just gone aside. Now I'm going to suggest that Barnabas's work is not mentioned simply because he's not in view. Not because what he's doing isn't worthwhile. Not because Barnabas and John Mark have gone off and they're doing something and it's inconsequential and it doesn't matter. It's just simply not in view. And this is primarily because it's Luke who's writing the account in Acts. And Luke travels with Paul and Silas. And therefore continues his diary, if you like, of Acts, the story of Acts, what's going on, the day-by-day account. He carries it on from his perspective, which is sat with Paul and Silas, not with Barnabas and John Mark. There is no doubt that Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways, and we assume from the narrative that this is a bad thing. It's easy to assume that, isn't it? They've had a full-on stinking argument. No good can come of that, surely. However, this is where a wider reading of Scripture is required. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which happens a little bit later, and in his letter to the Colossians, Paul commends the ministry of Barnabas. Now it's a bit odd, isn't it? They've had a full-on argument, and yet Paul still commends what Barnabas is now doing. So there's some evidence that although they did not travel again, the ministry of Barnabas was valuable in the areas that he travelled to. A different approach to ministry isn't necessarily clear-cut. It's never as simple as A is right and B is wrong. They're just different. And I think if we could grasp that, we'd understand things a little bit clearer. I want to put this out there, though. This disagreement that Paul and Barnabas had was not a doctrinal one. They did not differ on the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. That was the doctrinal truth they were both standing on. They just had a disagreement about how to do it and whether John Mark was naive and not the right person to go at that time with Paul. We're kind of reading between the lines a little bit there. But Barnabas evidently wanted to give Mark another chance. So we know that Barnabas is known as the the son of encouragement. We know that actually he goes out of his way to give people second chances. Who was it that stood up for Paul when Paul became a Christian and the Jews in in the city in Jerusalem were kind of fearful of this great persecutor? who had now met Jesus and had changed his life around? Who was it that went to the disciples and said, you need to give this guy a chance. You need to listen to what he has to say. You need to see what God has done in his life. It was Barnabas. So Barnabas, right at the very beginning, stood up for Paul and said, this is a guy that has undoubtedly changed. Give him a chance. 
So we don't know what irked Paul in this argument. We don't know. We can surmise, but we actually don't know. Maybe he saw something in John Mark that thought, you know what, it's just not suitable. I'm going to go back to churches where it's Gentile and it's just, it's going to be full on in your face and maybe John Mark just isn't cut out for it. And what's the evidence of that? Well, he, he, he abandoned us on the last trip. He came back to Jerusalem. He just left us halfway through. He didn't carry on with us. He didn't have the guts to do it. So maybe Paul saw something in him and said, you know what, he's just not cut out for this. And I know fully what God is telling me to do, so... I know the areas I'm going to go and maybe John Mark isn't cut out for it. We need to be sensitive to the requirements of particular roles. Sometimes it's just that other people are better suited for some tasks. And perhaps that was the argument, maybe that's what the argument was over. Both passionate people for the gospel, but they had different approaches to it. What we do know is that Mark eventually reunited with Paul. And he's referenced in a number of Paul's epistles, but most notably in 2 Timothy 4, when Paul asks Timothy this, bring Mark with you when you come to me, for he will be helpful for my ministry. So even though this looks bad, John Mark eventually was pulled back to Paul's side at Paul's request. He will be useful for the continuance of the ministry. So we know a couple of things from this sad episode. Number one, one missionary work became two. Think about that for a second. Paul and Barnabas split up, and we now know we have the narrative, we have the reading of what happened to Paul's journeys, but actually Barnabas and Mark are out there also doing the same thing in a different way and maybe Barnabas has got his arms around John Mark and is encouraging him to kind of be the man that he needs to be and what we do know is that eventually whatever happened to John Mark Paul asks for him and requests him so whatever happened at this point Barnabas did a good job with John Mark would you agree because John Mark was asked for by Paul and Barnabas is commended in the letters that Paul's writing as well. So it's not like we've had a disagreement and we're never going to talk, we're never going to, we're going to fall out forever. Doctrinally, they were exactly on the same page. And therefore, their work was the same, to tell people about Jesus. They just had different ways of doing it. Different people for a different task. So we also know that Mark matures and becomes a great help to Paul in the ministry. Barnabas has brought his encouraging attributes to bear and Mark becomes a valuable asset. And this is the same Mark who writes, writes the gospel account. Okay, so just so you know, it's the same Mark. It's John Mark, is Mark who writes Mark's gospel. Conflict happens. It's how we move on from it and learn from it that counts. Which brings us finally to Act 16. Now, I don't propose to read all of Acts 16 this morning. So in a break from the usual, I'm going to ask you to read the passage in its entirety when you get home. And then all of this will kind of hopefully make sense. And actually, 
so you can follow the thread of the story. Maybe as we move forward through Acts, we're going to be doing a chapter a week, it might be worth pre-reading the chapters as we go through. Because there's a lot of content that we can't draw out of it. We can't go through every single uh, word that's on the page. So we're going to draw out some of the kind of main points. But if you've got an overview or if you've read it previously, so if you read Acts 17 for next week and 18 for the week after and so on for, so forth, I think it will then make more sense. So Acts 16 sees Paul set off on his second missionary journey. At first retracing his steps to the Galatian churches and then onwards from there. And we are introduced at this point to this young Timothy. The same Timothy that 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, letters written to. We are introduced to young Timothy who joins Paul and Silas. So Acts 16 says this, Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left. For everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Now, I'm going to break there for a second. Because that's odd. We have just walked away from the council in Jerusalem where Paul has argued and been heard that you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And then what's the first thing that he goes and does when young Timothy comes and joins them on the next missionary journey? He arranges for him to be circumcised. Yeah, I can see you going, what? Doesn't make sense, does it? Is Paul saying one thing and then another? Is he contradicting himself like a lot of people try and make out that he does? It's important to note that this request for having Timothy circumcised is nothing to do with salvation at all. As the Galatians have been arguing for, you remember the Galatians church, they were arguing that you should be circumcised. If you're saved, you should be circumcised, you should be like us. And Paul argued at the council of Jerusalem, no, that's, that's not the case. You're justified by faith alone. Jesus died for you. You don't need to do anything else other than believe in him. So he's done this as a way of not bringing offence to the Jews that they are about to go and speak to. And that's really important. It's not as a means of salvation, it's just we're about to talk to a lot of Jews and they know that your father is a Greek, but they also know your mother is a Jew. So in order not to create offence, I'm going to arrange for you to be circumcised. So Timothy agreed. It wasn't forced on him. See, just as Paul had argued at the council for restraint in not offending each other for the sake of the gospel, here we see it being played out. Let's not hinder the gospel by our actions. If we can avoid offence, do so. Timothy's circumcision was not for justification, it was simply to help his acceptance to the Jewish believers, to make the gospel easier for them to take on board. 
It's worth noting this because in Galatians 2, Paul argues strongly against the need for Titus, who is a Gentile, to be circumcised. So it looks as though Paul's arguing one thing and then arguing another. But unless you see that actually it's just so offence isn't caused, you'll always be thinking, Paul changes his mind willy-nilly. So the two accounts are not at odds. They're making the same point. Circumcision does not justify your position in Christ, so it's not a legal requirement for a believer. However, in order to ease the acceptance of the gospel with the Jewish believers and so as to not cause offence, Timothy be circumcised. So Paul remains consistent in his views. Continues. Next, Paul and Silas travel through the areas of Pergia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia, but again the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. You'll notice a slight change in the pronoun at this point. There's a, the, the writer is starting to now say we and us. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day we landed at Neapolis. And there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be gathering for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying she and her household were baptised and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Okay, so just a quick point on this section. Sometimes good intentions are not going to bring about the best results. Sometimes good intentions are not going to bring about the best results. Just in case you were beginning to think that Paul never gets anything wrong and that he just everything he does is the right thing, we have this strange account. We have a warning for us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We are fallible human beings. We get it wrong. We foul up. We must be aware of how we trust Jesus and are led by the Holy Spirit in everything we do and not by man or seemingly good opportunities. We've got loads of opportunities for use of this church at the moment. That doesn't necessarily mean they're all good for us. We have to be careful, we have to be wise and we have to seek God's leading on whatever we do. We see here that Paul intended on two occasions 
to take the gospel to the areas that undoubtedly needed it, but on both occasions, the Holy Spirit stopped him in his tracks and did not allow it to happen. There was an almighty stop. Yes, it's a good idea. Yes, the intentions are good, but no. It was not God's plan at that time. What we see is that obedience to God's guidance results in the gospel entering Europe for the first time. Because they were stopped from going this way and that way. They were forced to go across to Macedonia after this dream. And specifically to the house of Lydia and in Philippi, where she and her household came under the gospel and are saved. And it's really important that we remain under the guidance of the Spirit and we test our plans, whatever they might be, individually and collectively, before we divert down wrong paths. Paul wanted to stay in Asia. God wanted Paul to go into Europe. And today, Christianity is Europe's dominant religion. All because God said, my ways are better than yours. And he was obedient. Isn't it just best to go with God's plans? Isn't it best just to stop fighting him and letting him lead us? I mentioned before that Barnabas and Mark's journey seems to have been ignored ignored and and therefore of little consequence. They're just not in the picture, they're not in the frame, so therefore there can't be any consequence to what they're doing. Well, that's not true either. It's like saying that nothing happened in the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is plainly ridiculous. 400 years of nothing? No, 400 years of God not directing his people through prophecy. But in that 400 years, we had the rise of Rome. We had the fall of the Greeks. There is so much of our world history in that 400 years of silence that we forget that God's still got a plan and he's still doing what he needs to do, even though he wasn't speaking to his people. So even though we don't have any mention of Barnabas and John Mark on their travels, they are undoubtedly spreading the word on on their journeys and trips. The focus is on Paul, but the gospel is spreading through others as well, notably Barnabas and John Mark. So perhaps Paul and Silas were stopped by the Holy Spirit because someone else was earmarked to carry the gospel there. Perhaps even Barnabas and Mark. The next section of the story shows some of the opposition that we've become somewhat familiar with. Whenever the gospel makes inroads into different cultural settings, there is opposition. First, there's the account of a demon-possessed girl whose livelihood is removed when Paul casts the demon from her. This results in Paul and Silas being put into prison, not for the first time and not for the last time. The story is well known, but probably stands some explanation. Philippi was a Roman colony and was very much run under Roman rules. In the time, it was actually known as a mini-Rome. Philippi, mini-Rome. It doesn't appear to have had a synagogue, so the believers in the city met by the river outside the city. It's probable that the Jews in Philippi and other areas in Greece were the result of the Roman governor, Claudius Caesar, expelling Jews from Italy. So there's a big persecution against Jews in Italy, and they were sent back away from Italy, and they resulted and ended up in cities like Philippi and Corinth and other places. 
we're going to meet Priscilla and Aquila in a few weeks' time. And they ended up in Corinth as part of this, ex part of this expulsion from Italy. At any rate, there's an air of anti-Semitism anti in Philippi. It was allowed for citizens of Roman colonies to have their own religious beliefs, but it was forbidden to convert to Judaism or Christianity. We see similar practices in the Middle East today. You can practice your own religion, but don't try and convert me. Paul and Silas receive severe beatings when they are imprisoned. They were particularly harsh beatings. And it takes great miracles of God for Paul and Silas to be freed from prison. A mighty earthquake, broken chains, smashed doors. Not a bad result for a bit of praying and singing. If you read the account, you'll see that Paul, Silas and the rest of the prisoners do not flee the jail. Instead, they stay where they are, resulting in the jailer drawing his sword in order to take his own life. And Paul stops him. Don't do that. We're here. We haven't run away. This is God. Don't be fearful. Let me explain to you what's happening here. And the jailer gives his life to the Lord. And then everybody in his household comes to faith. When God moves, he brings about increase. When faith in God is expressed during opposition, God brings about miraculous results. Whatever your circumstances, God can use you to bring others to faith. Whether directly or indirectly. Stand up for God and he will stand up for you. Acts 16.35, the next morning the city officials sent to the police to tell the jailer, let these men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said that you and Silas are free to leave, go in peace. But, you, but Paul replied, and they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly. <laughs> Certainly not. Let them come here and tell, them, tell themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologised to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. And there they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. See, Paul seems to have taken an awful long time to stand up to this anti-Semitism and then to reveal his true identity as a Roman citizen. And what did it matter anyway? Well, Paul had rights as a Roman citizen, especially in a Roman colony like Philippi. That's why it's important that we recognise that it's a Roman colony. He had certain rights. He had a right to a public hearing. He didn't get one. He should not have been beaten with rods, and yet he was. And all the while, Paul did not reveal his citizenship. Why? Well, possibly to spare the young church at Philippi, who would probably have been the recipients of all of that pain and anger, had he not taken it. Or possibly, it just wasn't the right timing for the right, correct response. And he waited and bided his time for the maximum input. It certainly generated a response as the officials asked for forgiveness and begged them to leave the city. It paints a really graphic story, doesn't it? Let them come here and release us from themselves. They put us here and they shouldn't have done. And then the officials begging them to leave the city. I'm sure it was the talk of the town for a long time. 
The beatings that Paul received in Philippi also had a profound effect on the next city on their travels, Thessalonica, where in the letter Paul writes to the church there, he states that the truth of the gospel is apparent by the way in which he, Paul, came to them, beaten and imprisoned in Philippi within an inch of his life. And he staggered into Thessalonica. And he still wanted to share the good news of Jesus, even though he's received all of that. How much humiliation are we prepared to take and stand, still stand firm? We learned last week about the armour of God and our ability to stand firm, even in the light of persecution and attack. That's why it's so vitally important. So I hope you can see that there's relevance in reading through Acts. We as a church will face some difficulties internally and externally. So it's important that we are led by God's spirit. We worship in the freedom that God gives us and we witness to the saving sacrifice of Jesus. After all, if Paul had failed and been overcome, Europe and us may never have heard the good news at all. So God has a plan. Let's be secure in it. Let's love him and worship him for everything he's done for us. And let's be led by his spirit as we continue to move on as a church. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.